One of the beauties of retreats is, is that they each are different and they have their own intelligence. Every every um, person, every group, every retreat has its own rhythm, intelligence unfolding. And I can see after the initial kind of, it took for many to settle, there's um, some capacity to work with material that's arising. And, you know, the flames are nicely hot nicely cooking and that's is what we like <laughs> so I wanted to talk this evening about letting go and one of the quotes of Ajahn Chah that I really love do you know who Ajahn Chah is? probably you don't some of you do. Some of you don't. Ajahn Chah is um, the grandmaster of the lineage that I initially ordained into. He was one of the first people that I heard about in Jack Engler's class in 1979 when Jack was talking about great meditation masters. And Ajahn Chah was a um, person who was born into a peasant family in the northeast of Thailand and ordained into the, um, the, the, the village monastic culture, which was very prevalent in Thailand. And um, he spent a certain number of years in that culture, and, and his conclusion was, you know, there's got to be more than this. This doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, is what you know, what this is all about. So he, um, I think he left, and he was a wandering monk for a number of years, and in part of his wandering, he had contact with Ajahn Mun, who was one of the grandfathers of the forest tradition. So Ajahn Mun is a very famous um, forest meditation master who used the essential teachings of the Buddha and the instructions on how to live as a monastic as a way of, of creating a container for understanding what was going on in his mind. And Ajahn Mun had, I don't know how many disciples, my guess is like 40 or 60 disciples. And most of those 40 or 60 disciples were highly accomplished meditation masters. And Ajahn Shah um, traveled for a while, and then his mother invited him back into the area where he was born, and he inhabited a, a malaria-infested, spirit-ridden swamp. 
for a while, which was often the place, you know, the forest monastics would go to the places nobody wanted. And, uh, and different monastics would come and train with him. And Ajahn Sumedho, um, who was my first uh, preceptor, was the first Western monk who went to spend some time with Ajahn Chah. And one of the things about Ajahn Chah that was really quite um, remarkable, because, I mean, one of the things that was a, a characteristic about most awakened beings is, is that they were really quite free. That was true for all of them. But different, different ones had different capacities to, with different kinds of people. And Ajahn Chah was masterful in being able to reach all kinds of different people. So, you know, he was born in Northeast Thailand. He probably had a equivalent of a grade school education. But he could speak to aristocrats and diplomats and wealthy people and peasant people. And he could speak to foreigners and somehow found a way that worked. So when Ajahn Sumedho went to go study with Ajahn Shah, um, there was a really strong resonance. And there was many other foreign monks who came and practiced with him. And Ajahn Shah, you know, he, he had, he was nobody, so he could be anybody. He would take on whatever he needed to be in order to do what was ever necessary. And so he had tremendous gentle, benevolent qualities to him where it was like, you know, grandmother's hands and grandmother's tenderness. And he could be just absolutely ferocious. I mean, just ferocious. And rub your nose in it like you cannot imagine, you know? And so, you know, there's all kinds of stories about Ajahn Chah. And uh, one of the stories that Ajahn Sumedho told, which I loved, because it's just classic. This is so classic. The deal with Ajahn Chah was, was on the full moon meditation practice. Everyone had to come and do the meditation practice. But when they came, it was up to Ajahn Chah to dismiss them. So none of this follow your intuition business. <laughs> Get up and leave the meditation hall when you're ready. Not like that. The master decided when you left. So you were prisoner. You were held captive until the master dismissed you. All right? So, I mean, and these are very serious meditation monks. These are not, you know, kind of like hippie, kind of like let's smoke some dope and get high and have some fun. These are like, you know, diehard, you know, kind of meditation monks. And they would do anything to be free. And so many of them did the Tatunga practices, which are the 13 ascetic practices, which is eating one meal a day, wearing rag robes, eating meals that were only offered on alms round, not lying down. Uh, so not lying down, not lying down, <laughs> like ever lying down. <laughs> And there's 13 of them, and all of them are meant to cut across our normal habits of wanting and craving and, you know, all of the stuff. But, you know, as you can imagine, with Western monks or with any kind of monks, you can take this thing and grab it by the wrong end. And anyway, we have all kinds of stories about people who did that, grabbed it by the wrong end. 
So it was meditation night, and so the idea was is they would do a meditation vigil from whenever, from 7 o'clock at night until 4 o'clock in the morning, and, and then at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, they, would, they would go on alms round. And this is serious. These are serious monks. This is serious business. So it was in the meditation hall, and Ajahn Shah had one of the villagers over. And they were standing in the middle of the meditation hall while the monks were meditating, gossiping. You know, who was pregnant, and how many chickens did this farmer have, and how many sheep did this one have, and which sheep were not having babies, and how many babies had twins, and gossiping for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and the monks were furious absolutely furious that they're disturbing their serious meditation practice and Achan Cha just twinkled and smiled and enjoyed every single minute of it until finally they had to get it that this was the practice that night. Listening to gossip was the practice to meditate with. That was it. And Ajahn Chah did not give in until they all got it. And I don't know how many hours it took, if it took eight hours or 12 hours or 16 hours, I don't know how many hours it took, but he would not let up until they all got it. So, his monastery was known as Wat Napapang, and not very far away, a 15-minute rickshaw ride away, was a foreign monastery for the foreigners. Because the foreigners and the Thais, they did things differently, and they liked having a different space. So around the forest monastery were all these quotes in English. And one of the quotes that I really loved was, if you let go a little, you'll have a little bit of peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this tonight in the context of what we're doing here on retreat and how this works and is related to our own practice and some of the things that you know we're talking about. So... In my understanding, in my experience, you know, letting go a little maybe could be related to a real clarity about picking up containers, picking up the precepts, and being clear about not wanting to engage in harm. And having that not wanting to engage in harm start trickling out into all of the various different areas of one's life. So... The commitment to take and to keep the precepts, the commitment not to harm, begins to have an effect of mirroring behaviors that we engage in that are in uh, cognitive dissonance with our value. 
and our value then uh, allows us to look at, to scrutinize, to examine some of the ways that we speak, some of the ways that we behave, some of the things that we say that we do that have harm in them. Maybe it's not huge harm, but enough harm to be harmful, to be not blameless, but to be harmful. And so when we take on this commitment to not do harm, then it requires that we let go of certain kinds of behaviors. We change our actions and we start beginning to get witness of the kinds of ways that we harm ourselves. The disparagement, the criticism, the judging, the slandering, the never good enough, the forever trying to compensate, the strategizing, all of these kinds of things that are going on like wallpaper all the time. And most of the time we don't even notice. So the commitment to do no harm requires that we notice. Because if it's going on without noticing, then we're engaging in these activities of believing these thoughts and harm is happening. And that's not what we want to do. So it requires stepping up to the plate, waking up to the kind of wallpaper of what we're dealing with so that we can start witnessing some of this stuff and and not believe it, not follow it, not attached to it, not act from it. And most of us have an awful lot of this kind of thing that we do to ourselves. And because we do it to ourselves, then it's inevitable that it spills out to the people around us that we care about. So to let go a little is to make a clear commitment about behavior that's suitable and to follow that. And to affirm that. To regularly polish the precepts by reaffirming them. Doing that by yourself. Doing that with other people who also value doing that. You know, in a monastery, it's traditional every two weeks that the whole community reaffirms all of their precepts. The monks and the nuns reaffirm their precepts, the seminaries reaffirm their precepts, the postulants reaffirm their precepts, the lay community come and join in to reaffirm their precepts. And this is one of the ways in which an institution can really support a healthy community by creating structure and opportunity for this very simple and incredibly powerful commitment to not harm. But, you know, most of us, if we handed out a piece of paper and we wrote down what's harmful and what's not harmful, it's, we're not confused about those things. That's not the problem. The problem is not an issue of not knowing what's harmful. The problem is, is, is that we can't navigate the kind of mind states that arise that, that cause us confusion and then lead us to doing things that we know are not okay. So the whole second layer of letting go is having to let go of these disturbing emotions that grab hold of us and, 
and grab us and pull us and push us and drive us into doing things that we know when we are reflective is not any good for anybody, you know. And so then entering into the whole territory of how to work with our emotions and our feelings about things and our beliefs about things and our views about things then cuts quite a bit deeper than just affirming a commitment not to harm because it's more complicated. And so, you know, we've been working with different practices, the foundations of mindfulness, we've been working with hindrances, we've been working with factors of awakening, to begin to get a sense that there are a variety of tools that we can bring to exactly these territories in order to give us more strengths and to begin to undercut some of the, 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 the things that, that pull us and push us outside of our values and convictions. And I don't know anybody for whom this is easy work. You know, this is not easy work. And yet it's really valuable that we, we can have some mastery, that we're not just a slave to the emotions that arise within us. And as I mentioned today, and as I mentioned on the first talk that I gave, you know, we have an interesting challenge because the Buddhist meditation tools are based on being able to observe our mind states. And when our emotions are arising as a result of a regressed mind state, where we're actually inhabiting the consciousness of a, of a child, or somebody who is not yet at maturity, then we need different tools other than just simply bringing the quality of observation to what it is that we're dealing with. In the same way that if we had a three-year-old child that was having a meltdown, we would not tell that child to go into the room by themselves, sit alone, and figure it out. We just, we would not do that. There's no way we would do that. And yet we do that to ourselves all the time because we take the instructions that it's important for us to observe what's going on and we don't attend to the fact that what we're dealing with is, is the mind state of a very young child who has no capacity to figure it out by themselves, who needs to have some support and mirroring and guidance to make sense out of the volatile emotions that are arising in order that then there can be more containment and appropriate behavior. And in fact, a lot of the disturbing emotions that we can be experiencing can be directly the result of not having had that kind of mirroring or holding or caring or inputting at the time when we needed it, when we were in our formative years. So this kind of letting go is not a letting go of not, ex not engaging. It's a letting go by engaging. It's a letting go by interacting. It's a letting go by intervening in the situation. 
And as I was alluding to today, it's very sophisticated work to be able to both discern the age of the consciousness that is being evoked and respond appropriately while you're inhabiting both the person who has the capacity to bring forth the heart of kindness and wisdom and responsiveness that is needed, as well as the consciousness of the child that's freaked out. That's not trivial work to do both. And it's possible to do both. It takes some time and some skill and some dedication to learn, but it is possible to do both. And until it's possible to do both, then it's really helpful to have regular contact with a person who can hold the space and do the intervening until we can learn how to do that ourselves. And so that could be a meditation teacher, a counselor, a therapist, a co-counselor. There can be many different ways that that can happen. But until we know how to hold both spaces where we are bringing forward the mature, wise, compassionate response, as well as moving back and forward into the space of this child that is distraught, that is frightened, that is angry, that is needing, then we need somebody to help hold the space to make that happen. So this kind of picking up and developing and cultivating and learning allows for quite a significant letting go. So that then we are able to balance the letting go that takes place through observation and the letting go that takes place through intervention. Growing ourselves up and letting go of the disturbing emotions that don't serve us and our values by wise interaction, observation, and intervention. Let go a little, there will be a little peace. Let go a lot, there will be a lot of peace. Let go completely, there will be complete peace. Even as we become skillful at intervening, and letting go of the emotions that are not congruent with our values. We still suffer because there is some attachment that we have to this being my experience. When we let go completely, we're getting underneath the experience of identification. That I am this body, that I am these feelings, that I am my perceptions, I am the stories that I am saying about my perceptions, I am the consciousness that is knowing all of this stuff. There's identity. There's identification. And so even if we are able to shift the territory, so rather than it being kind of like an inferno of volatile motions, it's much more peaceful, much more skillful, has a lot more integrity in it, a lot more compassion in it, a lot more kindness in it. 
a lot less harmful, we still suffer. Because we've taken some belief that I exist as a separate entity to whom I have a body and all my feelings and all my thoughts and all my memories and all my experiences and they're mine. They're mine and I am they. They belong to me and this is what I am. They're my possession and it's what I'm made out of. So it's not wrong in one sense that we experience the world that way. Our nervous system is sort of built to perceive an us and a them. Visual contact is set up that I experience myself here and you there. Okay? It's not not a, a fault. It's designed that way. But what we do with that perception is we solidify the sense that I'm here as somehow separate from you there, and that is truth that is abiding throughout time. And when we meditate and look, we begin to uncover that is an apparent truth that exists some of the time, but it's not the whole truth all of the time. And we can feel the amount of sensitivity and receptivity that we have to a group of people. How long have we been together? Three days? Three days. And it's like, you know, somebody needs the salt, they look, and then somebody picks it up and passes it. You know, somebody needs the tissue and the box is gone. You know, it's like, you know, it's just like in, a, in three days, the level of sensitivity and attunement that we have to each other is incredible. People are aware of what is going on for everyone else. And wanting to support whatever is needed so that it makes it more easeful. If we were really, truly independent entities that had existed by ourselves, separate from everybody else, I don't think it is possible that in three days we could have this level of attunement. So, if we're not a separate entity, if we're not our body, if we're not our feelings, if we're not our thoughts, if we're not our perceptions, if we're not the things that we remember, if we're not the things that we tell ourselves stories about, if we're not the consciousness that knows all of these things, then what in the hell are we? Well, that is a very profound question. What are we? I'm not going to answer the question. Because it'll take all the fun away.
So the Buddha set out on a quest to find the answer of what is beyond old age, sickness, and death. What doesn't change? And through practicing the four foundations of mindfulness and through concentration, through developing the factors of enlightenment, he had an answer. What doesn't change? So, for most people looking at that, they'll say this is a bell, music bell. If I turned it upside down, and I put Kuan Yin on it, then it's a stand. If I fill it up with water, it's a bowl. If I put flowers in the water, it's a vase. If I take it and smash somebody over the head, it's a weapon. If I take it on the edge and I roll it, it's a bowling ball. This does not have an existence independent from the way that it's used and my perceptions about it. Can you see that? Now, a physicist would say that even more to the point, that even though it looks solid and I can feel it as a weight, mostly it's made up of space. There's atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons moving in some kind of arrangement, mostly in space. Well, in our normal way of looking at this, it looks absolutely solid. We don't see the space. But when we begin to let our concentration focus and our eyes soften, then there are things about it that begin to shift. It's not so clear that it's an entirely separate object. It's not clear where my hand begins and the bowl ends. And, you know, holding hands with another person, it's hard to tell where one hand begins and the other one ends. So we have a sense, well, you know, the hand is me and the bowl is not me. So I can take care of the me bit, but I don't need to take care of the not me bit. Because what's not me, I, I don't really need to worry about. Let me digress for a little while and tell a story about what happened to me in Australia and see if I can tie it back again with the practice that we're doing. Before I went to Australia, I had a very strong aspiration or sense that what I had been doing in my practice, which was, you know, I just wanted to get out of suffering. Just, I want to get out of suffering. I just want to get out of suffering. I had done that as much as I could do and I'd gone to the end of that and it hadn't gotten me very... as. I wasn't free from suffering. I was still suffering. And so there was a sense that I needed another way, another direction, another path. 
and I wasn't sure exactly what it was. And then somebody was talking to me about the Bodhisattva vows, and without having a philosophical map about how this was going to work, there was some intuition that this was going to help. So the Dalai Lama was giving the Bodhisattva vows. I received the Bodhisattva vows, and then I went to Australia, and I was going to be living in a in a hut in the in a in a in a national park in 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 Australia outside of Sydney. It was two and a half hours away from Sydney. And so I went there, and and I, you know, I have always loved nature, but I'd never been to Australia before, and so there was both the kind of excitement about being in a new place and the kind of apprehension about being in a new place. And, you know, Australia has spiders and that are poisonous and snakes that are lethal and ants all over the place, and it's, you know, it just takes some getting used to. But I began to feel welcome by the land. Now, I've always felt comfortable in the land, but I've never felt welcomed by the land before. And when I was there in Australia, it was like, you know what it's like when you go to a family or to a group of friends and they're just delighted to see you? You know, delighted. Like everyone smiles and hugs you and makes squeaky noises and (laughs) they're delighted to see you. Well, it was like, you know, the butterflies were happy and the birds were happy. It was like I felt the land was delighted that I was there. And so, you know, it helped me relax, because when you feel like you're welcome, it helps you relax. So I was doing a weird practice. Monks and nuns do weird practices. I was doing a weird practice, tiger practice, where you don't lie down and you don't sleep for as many days as you decide. So I was up at weird hours. And there was an ant hill outside of the meditation hall, and I was observing the ants. You know, and you know, they're fascinating creatures. They're just amazing. They're so incredibly intelligent. It's just unbelievable. You know, they've got some kind of a thermodynamic design with their ant hill so that it keeps it temperature regulated. And they have a hole where they come in and out. But at nighttime, in the wintertime, when it's cool in Australia, they plug the hole with ants. So they make an ant door where they fill up the hole with ants so that there's just enough space for one ant to go in and out so that they don't have a lot of flow of air so that they can regulate the temperature of their ant hill. I mean, they're just unbelievably intelligent, incredible creatures. So the ant hill was right on the path where we were walking to the meditation hall. And as much as I love nature, I was born in Los Angeles, okay? (laughs) and so I had this bright idea that only somebody born in the city would have which is is that if I took a broom and I gently brushed the bottom of the anthill they would move so that they would not be spilling over onto the path so I took the broom and I brushed the bottom of the anthill and in half a second the anthill was on an, an eat and destroy mission you know so they were on red red alert, eat and destroy. And so, all right, so I am from L.A., but I'm not entirely stupid. So I recognized that I had made them agitated. And I went and I put the broom down, which was like six feet away. 
And then I thought, they're agitated. I need to give them some meta. This is also something only somebody from L.A. would think. <laughs> so I walk back into a charging anthill, going to give them meta. Not one ant bit me. Not one. Not one ant bit me. And I walked into the charging anthill, and not one bit me, and it was like, I can't believe this just happened. They totally knew the difference in an instant between my activity, which was dislocating them, and my intention, which was kind. They got it. An ant? So I was living in a little kuti, which I absolutely loved. I loved my kuti. It was like, I don't know, it was tiny, uh, maybe seven and a half feet by eight and a half feet or nine feet. I mean, it was really small. And I lived in that kuti for about two years. And outside my little kuti was a walking path. And this was like a Cadillac walking path. This was not an ordinary walking path. This was like five-star walking path. It had soft, white, silky, smooth sand on a perfectly level path with it was absolutely perfectly wide enough with the right orientation looking out over spectacular view of canyon and trees and eucalyptus and acacia and, and agafra trees, rocks. It was spectacular walking path. So I like my walking path. And when you have a little kuti that's six and a half feet by eight and a half feet, you like a walking path. <laughs> so I was out on my walking path all the time, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the nighttime. I was walking there frontwards, I was walking there backwards. Most of the time I was walking barefoot. And all, a lot of the time I walk with my eyes closed. Now, in ants, there's, in Australia, there's like, I don't know, 10,000 ants. And some ants are little, and some ants are a little bit bigger, and some ants are bigger still, and some are yellow, and some are blue, and some are black, and some are red, and some are biting, and some are nasty, and some are sweet, and some are friendly. And one kind of ant is a bull ant, and it's this big, and it's got like prongs in the front, which are like pitchforks that it injects a, a, a poison into you. And when you get bit by a bull ant, it swells up to the size of a golf ball, and it hurts like all those swear words say for a week, and then it itches like all those swear words say for another week. And so you know really quickly about bull ants because it's such an intense thing if you get bitten by them. Now, the bull ants were absolutely territorial and totally aggressive if you were on their territory. And there was a bull, there weren't very, bull ants were reasonably rare, but there was a bull ant's nest off of the path that connected the path that went down to everything. <coughs> so my path, my walking path, connected to this other path, and off this other path was a bull's ant's nest. All right? So when I was on that path, I always had my torch if I was coming back at night, and I always looked out for these ants, because if I didn't, You know, you know about it. So I was extraordinarily careful to look out for those ants. On my path was about 16 feet away from their path. 
I was up and down on my path all the time, barefoot, night, day, eyes closed, backwards, forwards. They made forays onto my path to look for dead bugs. They stayed out of my way on my path. And I totally knew that they stayed out of my way on my path. I felt totally safe that I could walk with my eyes closed on my path, that they would get out of my way. I didn't have to worry about it. And it's like, this is an ant? An ant knows territory and when to respect and when to fight? An ant can figure this stuff out? An ant? So what this did for me was it made me think like, you know, my goodness, you know, here I am, this this meditation practitioner, I'm a spiritual practitioner, you know, and it's like, can I do it as well as the ants do? <laughs> And so it really made me look at, you know, for me, I had lived my life under the assumption that respect, you give respect when it is worthy. When somebody is worthy of respect, you give, you don't give respect when somebody is not worthy of respect. But I thought, well, what would happen if I just changed my attitude a little bit and instead of deciding that I would only give respect when people were worthy... I gave respect because it actually felt like it was a lovely thing to do. So during the summertime, I went into a cave, not as some kind of extreme ascetic practice. It was my middle class, like, can I survive the heat in Australia move? Because the cave was always, never got hotter than 87 degrees. And my kuti was like 105, you know. It was just, it was an inferno. So I went into this cave. It wasn't a proper cave, it was an overhang. But it was much more comfortable in terms of temperature. And so, you know, the land had given me a sense of welcome. I was feeling more sense of safety and trust. I was beginning to let go of some of the kind of ideas that I had about practice. You know, that you walk and you sit and you walk and you sit and you bow and you chant and you bow and you chant and you walk and you sit, you walk and you sit and you bow and you chant and you bow and you chant. And I started just trusting. Imagine that. <laughs> just trusting that, that there would be awareness to meet what was arising. And the combination of the bodhisattva vows and the ants and the reorientation around the value of respect and nature, I started seeing things that I had never seen before about myself. Layers revealed themselves I had never had access to before. So some of the stuff that I've been talking about, you know, in terms of intervening, was stuff that I just really began to get a clear sense of in that context. But I also started to notice that as I was relaxing, that I had less a sense of me being a solid lump in nature, and then me being a lump in friendly nature, and me being with family, and then the sense of me started to soften and dissolve. There was just nature. 
And while there was just nature, some of the internal stuff that was arising was fear and anger and self-hatred that I didn't have access to. But that also was nature. I didn't need to solidify it as being mine or who I was. It was arising. And I was attending to it, but it was arising. As I began to soften and nature began to take on more and more and more presence so that there was just nature, then there ceased to be inside and outside. There was just nature. And when there was only nature, everything belonged. Everything belonged. I didn't separate, this is mine, that's not mine, that does not belong. Everything belonged. And what happens when everything belongs is there's no occlusion to the way compassion flows. It has no limit. It has no boundary. And what I have in the past experienced myself to be is also included in the compassion. Let go a little, you have a little bit of peace. Let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. Let go completely, there's complete peace. That's the beauty of this practice. It's a gradual practice. And it's a complete practice. You can start where we're at and continue with it until there's complete peace. So I think I will end the reflection here this evening. And we can close the evening with sharing a blessing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.